Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Two immigrant women detained by ICE at the Clay County Jail in Brazil, Indiana, have filed a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, alleging that their lives are at risk from COVID-19. The complaint seeks an investigation into COVID conditions at the jail and the lack of precautions taken at the jail to prevent the disease from spreading. The National Immigrant Justice Center filed the complaint on behalf of the two women. The complaint alleges that the jail doesn't give immigrants tested for the disease their test results, and if they test positive, they receive no pain medication. Further, the jail doesn't give detainees face masks or hand soap. The complaint also says guards don't always wear face masks, and few, if any, social distancing protocols are observed. Lisa Chun, the women's lawyer with the National Immigrant Justice Center, commented, quote, The Biden administration continues to subject people to punitive ICE detention where deadly conditions and medical neglect are rampant. The declarations provided in this complaint should be taken seriously and provide a wake-up call for the administration to urgently release people and dramatically scale down the abusive immigrant detention system." Black Ink, an abolitionist website dedicated to police and prison issues in Michigan, has reported that on May 18, 2021, the Ypsilanti City Council voted to hire three additional armed Ypsilanti Police Department officers and a YPD records clerk. This requires the city to exceed its budget. The measure passed, but the council persons who opposed it based their concerns on the deficit and the lack of public input. The council's own police oversight commission had not yet had time to issue a comment on the measure. The anniversary of George Floyd's murder by a Minneapolis police officer passes between the date of the vote and the next city council meeting. On June 1, 2021, Members of the public expressed their opposition and the council defended the hiring. The council can rescind the officers from the budget through an amendment. Black Inc. will be publishing a series of public comments on this issue in the coming weeks. Check out black-inc.info for more. Thus far, they have heard from H.H. Gonzalez, a community organizer incarcerated in the Michigan Department of Corrections. This is his statement. I have lived in and around Ypsilanti for the majority of my life. I'm a 50-year-old black man and have witnessed the criminal activity in Ypsilanti from an up-close and personal point of view for many years. I have a unique angle. According to society and the courts, I was labeled a criminal, went to prison, and returned to society as an activist for the betterment of the Ypsilanti community. As a community, a village, we need to invest these funds into preventative measures. We need to find the points where children are psychologically transitioning into making decisions to choose violence or crime instead of solving whatever crisis they have. We need to help those with a history of crime or violence make better decisions. 
We need to create centers and high problem areas that provide other options and alternatives to the streets. If it takes a village to raise a child, then let's become a village. If we leave the streets to raise our children, we can't complain about how they turn out and then call in armed strangers to lock them up. Clearly, policing doesn't work to solve the problems because they've been around for hundreds of years and the problems still exist. It's time we looked to ourselves to be active in helping create change in our environment. The Illinois General Assembly has passed a bill making the state the first to prohibit police officers from lying when interrogating people under 18 years old. The bill passed with nearly unanimous support from both political parties and is going to Governor J.B. Pritzker to sign it into law. The bill ensures that any confession of a person under 18 in which an officer knowingly lied would be inadmissible as evidence in court. Though the legislation halts police lying to children and teens, it doesn't include specific punishments for officers who lie while interrogating a suspect. What's more, the bill doesn't apply to deception in other situations, such as when the police stop youth on the street or in school. According to Stephanie Coleman of the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law, the bill could give an incentive to police to interrogate and lie to youth in those situations. In Illinois, in the last 30 years, 100 wrongful convictions have been based on false confessions, with 31 of those interrogated under 18. This week, KiteLine shares a wide range of reflections on struggles on both sides of the prison walls. Perilous Chronicle's Ryan Fatika returns with Lauren Regan from the Civil Liberties Defense Center, who has tips for protesters. IDOC Watch discuss their campaign for mass clemency in Indiana. Malik Washington talks about getting off paper and self-care post-prison. Let's get started. Lauren, what advice would you give to activists today, particularly young people who may have gotten involved in social movements for the first time this summer? A lot of people may have seen these protests as very powerful as they were and were very enamored and are now dealing with some disillusionment with all the repression that we're facing. What advice do you have for them? The first thing I would say is, like, if you are going to engage in direct action, you have to take yourself seriously. And that means knowing what you're getting into before you get into it. That's not only regarding, like, knowing your rights, which I do think are, you know, are important. And our website, like CLDC.org, you know, since the pandemic started, we've been doing these weekly webinars for activists on all sorts of topics, including security culture, state repression, police misconduct, know your rights for climate activists, digital security, you know, all these different topics. And if you're going to engage in activism that involves property damage, for instance, you are basically offering yourself up to the state if you are not prepared for that level of risk. The amount of discovery that I have had to watch of people wearing very distinct costumes and clothing, breaking windows, walking into stores that are obviously filming, you know, and, and have video cameras everywhere, and they're not masked up or they're like in such distinct clothing 
And, you know, and now, like, even in Eugene, where I am, you know, the cops just posted, like, 60 pages worth of screenshot photos of people who were, you know, breaking windows and walking into stores and taking things or just walking around. And now there's, like, warrants out for their arrest and, you know, the state is hunting them. You know, so we actually need to take responsibility for making their jobs so easy and just making ourselves such easy targets. You know, the first thing I would say is, like, take yourselves seriously, you know, and and know what you're getting into and at least attempt to mitigate risk before you end up looking around in wonder why there's a warrant out for your arrest and then being shocked and appalled that you're being dragged into the state and prosecuted. I think people sometimes get caught up in the moment maybe and their brain kind of turns off for a hot minute and they end up in water that they were not prepared to swim in. I imagine it's hard to be always on the the receiving end of that discovery and seeing video after video. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the other thing I would say is... Um, you know, although live streaming and citizen videography has been monumental with regard to holding police accountable for misconduct and abuse, it is also overwhelmingly being used by police and the state to incriminate and prosecute our side of the equation. People live streaming um, from actions and uprisings and showing the faces of people who are committing alleged crimes is working with the state. I mean, because there's cops sitting behind computers. Their job is to screen capture and record your live stream. In fact, in one of the cases, BLM cases we have going on right now, one of the pieces of discovery received from the cops is a cop using his cell phone to record a computer screen of an activist's live stream showing people allegedly breaking the law. And that is wow. discovery being used against those activists. So people need to get a little more savvy about how they're using their phones and recording, you know, things on the streets. Way more savvy, fast. And then they also mm -hmm. need to um, be much more aware of how social media is being used against them and the movements because the state is just, you know, getting warrants and sending letters to Facebook and Instagram. You know, they don't even need, you know, search warrants in order for these social media companies to, like, voluntarily hand over all your stuff, including your private Facebook chats and, you know, other things like that. So anything you put online, you should imagine to yourself, how is this going to look as an exhibit being used against me at trial? Um, mm -hmm. Because it's possible that that is going to happen. So those are a few things that I would say, um, you know, that we really need to get a handle on really sooner than later because there is vast damage being done by our movement's failure to address these changes in technology and the way the state is capturing and using them against us.
I'm Nick. I'm the outside general coordinator for IDOC Watch. This is Cody, and uh, I'm coordinator for the response committee, which basically you know, is what it is. We coordinate with the various efforts that are being going on to make sure that uh, we're putting our best foot forward in those endeavors. The Freedom Now campaign for mass release is a initiative that we're starting to work on that is aimed at mass decarceration, mass release in Indiana. We've identified 16 issues um, in policy and law that we're calling triggers of mass release that are common sense or relatively common sense issues that changing each of them would result in the release of hundreds or thousands of people from prison and the shortening of many other people's sentences. We're breaking it up into sections. So there's 16 that we've identified, each of which would result in the release of hundreds or thousands of people. And we've started with three that we're in the phase of doing research on right now. The first three issues that the campaign for mass release is dealing with this is what we consider to be the, you know, the, the lowest hanging fruit, uh, so to speak. And, you know, that would be elderly. Uh, I think it's a very kind of common sense that, I mean, and statistics show that elderly people aren't, you know, really any harm to society. So people that have over 50, something, 60 years of age that have been certain, you know, served half of their sentence or mostly, most of the time, half of their lives in prisons, you know, should be released. You know, they're, they're ailing in health and you know, it's just, it's just no reason to keep them in there. So that's, that's like one big key one right there. And then there's also like people that are really incarcerated for technical parole violations. A lot of those t times it's a sim something as simple as of, you can be violated for not having a phone service because it's, it's required that you answer your phone at all times for your parole or probation officer. And it's the same thing for, you know, failure to notify the change of address, simple technical violations that aren't any, you know, quote unquote crimes being committed. But, you know, technical fine print stipulations of paperwork that um, are being, you know, violated that sends people back to prison for their backup times, but sometimes are anywhere from a couple of years to a decade. You know, it depends on the backup time, depends on the case. So obviously that's that's a big one, you know, paro technical parole or probation violations that can recent reincarcerate somebody, you know, for having not, not committed a new offense. And the third one of the most common sense ones we've identified would be that right now, the DHB board in prisons are able to take arbitrarily any amount of good time that they so choose from a prisoner. So good time is, you know, time accrued toward their sentence and if effectively, you know, making their outdate closer. So when they take away good time, which could be, it's totally arbitrarily, they're arbitrary. There's no like court or board. It's actually just one CO that does it. Basically, it resentences people to more time, years even, on their case, which of, of which they've already served. There needs to be more oversight on that for sure, if not totally eliminating the option of taking away good time to begin with. So those are the three main concerns for the start of the launch of the campaign for mass release at this time. With each of those, we're still in the process of coming up with like the exact demand or the exact position that we're taking on it. But in the case of the incarceration of elderly and medically vulnerable people, we want to see the establishment of a new system for compassionate release and clemency that is accountable to the communities that people are released to, where they're from and where they're released to, rather than this totally arbitrary board of appointed bureaucrats who probably have like family members who've done favors for the governor or past governor. 
if people aren't aware, the parole board is the board that also hears clemency cases, and it's completely arbitrary. They're not elected. They're an appointed group of people who have no relationship to you know, any kind of community that's affected by the carceral system. And no one has been granted clemency at all in Indiana, I think, since 1977, definitely since the 70s. So that's one sort of like position or general idea towards position on that. And then in the case of the reincarceration of people on technical parole and probation violations, we're arguing that no one should be ever be reincarcerated for technical violations and that everyone who is incarcerated currently for a technical violation should be released and that the parole board should not have this arbitrary discretion over who gets released and who doesn't, that there should be a mandatory parole criteria that is established so that everyone has the opportunity to be paroled after a certain number of years, no matter what their crime and sentence, if they've completed certain rehabilitative criteria. And then with the disciplinary hearing boards, our position will be something to the effect of they can't take away good time. And everyone who has had good time taken away by disciplinary hearing boards should have it restored. And if that means they get released, then they should be released. And they should actually get compensated for the time they spent in prison as a result of having good time taken. So Leon Benson is a member and an organizer with IDFC Watch, and he has filed a petition for clemency. So what we're trying to do with his case is set a precedent to get clemency for people in Indiana again. Like I said, no one has gotten clemency since the 70s in Indiana. So what we're trying to do is build popular support for the idea that people should have access to clemency and compassionate release. We're working with Leon and his family to start to build that sort of public pressure. My name is Malik Washington. I'm with the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. As of June 11th, I was done with my obligation with the federal government, meaning that I don't, I'm not in the custody or surveillance or I'm just not, um, I don't have any, uh, no more connections with the federal government as far as incarceration is concerned. They removed the ankle monitor. They took it off of me. So that part of my life is over. And with that came the restrictions on my freedom of speech. Because if your um, audience would remember, there was like a rally and there was a lawsuit and it was all connected with my freedom of speech being encroached upon by the federal government because I exposed a COVID-19 outbreak downtown San Francisco at a geo group operated halfway house called the Taylor Center. Those constraints on my freedom of speech are now over and I'm not running around, uh, you know, just trying to stir up trouble with the federal government and pick fights. I'm just doing the work. It's Juneteenth. So uh, today I'm emceeing a rally in the city of San Francisco at City Hall, and it's a Juneteenth kickoff rally, and it starts at 12 noon, and I'll be emceeing that event. And then tomorrow evening, I'm flying to Terre Haute, Indiana, in order to um, host another Juneteenth event for our comrade and friend, Kwame Little Bean Shakur. And there is like a lot of kind of controversy surrounding that event. And it's at a community center that historically Kwame Shakur's family has been closely associated with. But now somehow a man named Daniel Schaus, 
who is like the brother-in-law of Kwame's aunt or the husband of Kwame's aunt. It's really, it's kind of um, convoluted. But anyway, this community center in the neighborhood that Kwame Little Bean Shakur was raised in has been historically connected to the Shakur family. And now the family member or step family member, Daniel Shouse, who is a black man, has actually, I don't know, somehow he's in some kind of collusion with the owners of the community center. And they're trying to squeeze Kwame Little Bean Shakur and his family out. They just don't want them involved in anything, any planning, any classes or anything to do with this community center. So I'm coming to Terre Haute to celebrate Juneteenth. Um, but we also want to shed light on some of this um, wow, counter-revolutionary behavior that's going on and just hurting the people because uh, Kwame Little Bean Shakur is a very, very influential politicized prisoner in Indiana. And he has this new movement called the Prison Lives Matter movement. And it's really gaining traction throughout the United States. And it's just kind of this, I don't know, it's disheartening to see a family member siding basically against uh, Kwame and his family and trying to squeeze them out of a center that has historically been theirs to use. It's just really unsettling. What is uh, some of the other work that you're doing after getting off paper in addition to the support for Kwame? I'm pretty well known as a community activist and a reporter, like on-the-spot reporter here in San Francisco. And I guess I've gotten a lot of attention on some of my MC skills, MCing events. So I was uh, connect. I was actually contacted by Ashley and Michelle Monterosa, and they asked me to MC the Toucan Block Party. It's, it was the second annual Toucan Block Party, um, and just memorializing Sean Monterosa. Sean Monterosa was a very remarkable young man who was murdered by the Vallejo Police Department in uh, 2020. And it's a, it was a very sad story. And what was also remarkable is that the Biden and Harris campaign, they said that they were going to make sure that Ashley and Michelle got justice for Sean Monterosa. Sean is just one of the many young men of color that have been murdered by the law enforcement here in the Bay Area. And so what's been going on is I've just been doing a lot of work in the community, trying to put forward a black brown media consortium where there's like a collaboration and solidarity between both black and brown media and us embracing the fact that there are common denominators that are affecting our communities that we all need to get behind. And that like gentrification, over-policing, lack of health care, lack of quality housing. There's a lot going on out here in the Bay Area. And that's what I've been involved in. It's just uh, community work and social justice work here in the community. Do you feel like your time inside has helped your community organizing skills at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's definitely, but things look a lot different out here than they do inside. And one thing, uh, one word that, um, that I have become recently familiar with is capacity. And that's, you have to manage your time. Um, you know, just like in prison, you're, you have to manage your time. You have to manage your time out here and make time for self-care. Um, I'm really, really been putting a lot of energy into work and my social justice work. 
but I really haven't had time to work on some of my issues as far as my personal life. And that's, uh, it's rough. It's, it's hard to balance personal life with your activism and your job. You know, the cost of living is very high out here. So that's the thing. When you're in prison, you don't have to pay rent. You don't have to pay a car note. You don't have to pay insurance. You don't have to manage credit cards. You um, um, Sobriety wise, you don't have to worry about uh, staying sober. Um, it, there's drugs, but it's not it's not on the level of things that are out here. Out here, you can go and drink a beer, have a cold one with your buddies anytime you want. And, and there's a lot going on out here. So there's just a difference. You know, you're, it, my organizing skills were honed inside, you know, but out here you have a lot more distractions and I'm benefiting from the work that I did inside. But at the same time, it's just, it's not the same. It's just, uh, it's almost like I'm on sensory overload. There's just so much to catch up on and learn. We have to look at the reality and the reality is the United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other country in the world. We lead the world in incarcerating our citizens and that's sad. And then the United States still has been skirting liability in regards to their human and civil rights abuses that continue to happen within their prisons. They're, you know, why cannot the United States be brought up on charges at the, at the International Court in The Hague? They continue to perpetrate crimes against humanity, against human beings here, whether they be immigrants who are trying to come here fleeing violence from their countries and trying to find a better place here, or the prisoners like the prisoners in Alabama who are being degraded, dehumanized, mistreated, and abused by their minders at Alabama DOC or Florida or my former uh, state, Texas, you know, which basically has perfected the art of exploitation of free labor. Um, there's, you know, there's no accountability when it comes to the United States violating human and civil rights. And they, they're always quick to uh, run after a ruler or someone in an African country that has um, violated his people's civil or human rights. But there's no accountability here in the United States, and that's very troubling. Do you have any other closing thoughts or updates? Yes, I would like to say that Nube Brown, um, my partner, friend, and comrade, is now the editor of the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. And Nube has started something called Bayview TV, which airs every day on Instagram at 9 a.m. And I just encourage people to visit us on Instagram, visit uh, the Bayview website, uh, www.sfbayview.com, and then visit our Instagram page at sfbayview and check out the amazing work that New Bay is doing with Bayview TV. The ankle monitor was a whole nother, you know, chapter to uh, the surveillance and the incarceration. It was the last, it was the last chapter, but it was uh, very frustrating. But like I said, the, the, the monitor was removed on June 11th and uh, I've just been trying to adjust to uh, being free. It's, it's nice, but it's uh, also kind of overwhelming at times. And I want to just thank KiteLine and I want to thank you, Mia, for um, just being a friend and a comrade ever since I was incarcerated and uh, just continuing uh, the support and solidarity out here while I'm free. And um, any way that I can lend aid or support to KiteLine, please do not hesitate to ask. I will be there in a minute. Uh, thank you and have a great day. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 
47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.